0: You're listening to the Autism Outreach Podcast, and I am your host, Rose Griffin. I'm a speech-language pathologist and a board-certified behavior analyst. Today, we had a great conversation with Kate Cranbois. She is a speech-language pathologist, board-certified behavior analyst, and AAC specialist. We talk all about the Communication Bill of Rights, and that is something that is so dynamic and such an amazing resource. If you haven't checked it out, it's available at asha.org. She talks with us all about AAC as a shared process from assessment through intervention. And if you're just started either professionally or as a parent in the world of AAC, this is a great episode for you. She talks about some really great resources to help you feel more comfortable with the process. Kate is certified and she has 13 years of clinical experience working in private practice, outpatient clinics, outpatient hospital settings, and consulting to private schools and legal teams. She specializes in AAC and she has her own practice called Grand Bois Therapy and Consulting, LLC. She also has an amazing podcast called SLP Nerdcast. She is a wealth of information and I'm so excited to share this episode with you.
1: You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session.
0: Thanks for joining us on episode 32 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. My name is Rose Griffin. I'm here to help you learn strategies you can use in your therapy sessions tomorrow to help your students. And today we have with us Kate Grandbois. Did I say that okay? You sure did. Okay. Thanks so much for joining us, Kate. It's so nice to have you on. I feel like we've been friends for a long time, but I don't know if we just got
1: connected within the past 6 months to a like year, do you think? I think that's about right, but we share a lot of the same space and, you know, knowing you is great, Rose. You're fantastic. Yes.
0: So fun. Kate is going to tell you a little bit more about her, but she is a fellow SLP. BCBA, Instagrammer. You actually have a TikTok as well. I talk about social media a lot as a way to disseminate here on the podcast. So let's
1: hear all about that. Can you tell us a little bit about you and your journey? I can tell you lots about me and my journey, but not much about social media because I barely know how to use it. And if you find me on TikTok, there is one video, and that's probably all you're ever going to see of our TikTok channel. But anyway, uh so I am a dually certified speech and language pathologist and board certified behavior analyst. I am also a um for those of you who are listening to this as an audio version I am a quote air quotes um AAC specialist and I put that in air quotes because it's not really a title and it is a somewhat controversial title if you follow in those circles. Um but I have been working exclusively in augmentative and alternative communication for about the last 10 years and it's the it's 100% of my clinical practice. And that is what I do now. I became a speech and language pathologist in 2007 and worked in pretty much AAC within the first three years of being a certified SLP. And I quickly learned as I got more and more involved in um, working with individuals with complex communication needs and individuals who are minimally speaking or non-speaking, that there was this huge overlap in uh, behavioral needs. And as I, I started my first five years, I worked in a hospital and got trained at the hospital in augmentative alternative communication by my counterpart, Amy Wonka, who if anybody listens to our podcast. She's my co-host in general, all around one amazing human being. I spent five years in the hospital and then transitioned into private practice. And when I was in private practice, I quickly realized that in working with this population, I could choose the best augmentative alternative communication system. I could do the best parent training. I could be I could be like just living large and doing a great job. But if I couldn't get my my clients out from under their desk, then I couldn't do anything for them equally at the same time, was having all of these really frustrating conversations with BCBAs who were resistant to implementing my strategies or talk to me in a bunch of mumbo jumbo big fancy words. Or I was just having a lot of really frustrating experiences with BCBAs. So I sort of had this, what do these people know that I don't know? I don't understand. What knowledge do I need to have to get these people to listen to me? At the same time, I was having this ex- clinical experience of not really being able to serve my clients to the best of my because I spent a lot of my sessions trying to manage behavior or improve behavior or improve my therapy with complex behavior without really the science to help me do that. So in 2015, I went back to school while I was pregnant with a toddler. And uh, I should thank my husband for not leaving me during that period of my life. So I went back to get up my BCBA. And since then, I'm still in private practice. But the last two years have been primarily focused on, as you mentioned, disseminating information. So, the largest part of my practice is a continuing education platform that has, it's a podcast for ASHA CEUs and master classes and webinars and all of that stuff. So. That's my journey in a nutshell.
0: Interesting. Yes. I know when I went back to get my BCBA, actually, my husband was totally fine. We were living in a different state with no family around. And I had my first baby down there and things didn't get crazy until I started studying for the BCBA exam, which is a very notably hard exam. And Mm -hmm. after I completed that, he said, you're not going back to school again for anything, are you? (laughs) And then a couple of years later I started ABA speech, but that's okay. I mean, it's it's hard. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. So and you in your area too, you're on the East Coast. Would you say that mm-hmm. your area is really dense with Non-public programs for kids with autism and or de- more dense with BCBAs. It feels like it
1: would be, but it is. is that true? You think? I heard a statistic actually yesterday while I was listening to a podcast, and it might not be an up-to-date statistic because I think the episode was a little old. But I think Ma- Massachusetts, if not now, at one time, had the the highest density of BCBAs in the country. So we have a lot. Here in Massachusetts, we also have a lot of non-public programs for individuals with complex communication needs, behavioral needs, and autism spectrum disorders. And so we are sort of spoiled out here because the, as I mentioned, I've had a lot of really frustrating conversations with BCBAs, but there are also a lot of resources Mm -hmm. for families. And I'd say the vast majority of BCBAs that I've worked with are tremendously collaborative in that they know their scope of competence and don't infringe upon my scope of competence or collaborate with me nicely when we have a shared scope of competence. But yes, the East Coast is... I mean, I've learned through my journey, just being on social media, that everywhere is different. And I know where you are is very different from where I am.
0: Yes. Yes. Not as dense, but I definitely related to the fact that actually even as an SLP BCBA, and now I've been duly certified for 10 years. I'm also a school-based practitioner three days a week and uh, recently got into, I'd say, a disagreement with a BCBA about AAC, Shocker. Kate. Shocker. I know Shocker. about AAC. So, you know, I, I vented to a fellow unicorn that I vent, <laughs> uh, vent to, another SLP BCBA. And then I composed myself when I wrote a nice professional email. And Do you know had... how many
1: of those are sitting in my
0: draft <laughs> box? They're like rage emails and then I don't send them. That's
1: good. You're practicing HALT.
0: I talk about that in my ASHA approved ethics course. There you Um, go. But yeah, you practice HALT. But anyway, I did have a meeting with ABCBA recently about an AAC device with a person I've worked with for a very long time. And we all have those conversations. I mean, and this is coming from two people who are SLP BCBAs. I know that sometimes SLPs and BCBAs don't always see eye to eye about thing, you know, and it can be really hard to have that collaboration. And, and I liked how you talked about how, I know we we're going to talk about that today with AAC, how we can like all work together and, you know, all those really amazing things. It's really great that your practice is really made up of supporting AAC users. That's so very specific. And I'm sure that people really love that. People are always reaching out to me on social media about, about that. So, And you're licensed in... Is it
1: Massachusetts? Yes. Massachusetts. Yep. Okay.
0: Awesome. Um, so today I had Kate on because AAC comes up a lot. Um, and so today we're going to talk about AAC collaboration and evidence-based practice. So um, oh boy. With AAC... Are you excited? Are you ready Woo-hoo! for this? I, <laughs> I hope <know>. so. <laughs> Let's get ready. <laughs> AAC is definitely a shared space and we share it with parents, teachers and other professionals. So can you talk to us a little bit about Kind of everybody's role in that. How can we can work more collaboratively together? Because you were talking about some of the barriers when you were becoming a BCBA. Like this is my my students not exactly engaged in the therapy sessions, and mm-hmm. you know that's maybe why you wanted to to learn more about behavior and things like that. I know a lot of people are probably really struggling with the implementation piece. Um, you know, I'm really fortunate to work in an amazing a school district where, you know, everybody is on board with whatever the communication recommendations are. But I know just from being in the field 20 years, sometimes, you know, there might be speech therapists listening who, you know, having someone take the device out of the book bag and make sure it's charged and some of those might be barriers and things like that. So can you talk to us a little bit about that collaboration piece and how we can make sure that we're all working together to get everybody on the same page?
1: Sure. So you touched on like 10 different really important things. So I'm going to really try hard to compartmentalize them and go through them in a sequence. So the first piece of the you know shared communication and collaboration is I want people who are listening or watching to think about the Communication Bill of Rights. If you're not familiar with the Communication Bill of Rights, you can Google it. It is a resource available through ASHA and it lists several bullet points of how communication is just that, a a fundamental human right. So thinking about the the Communication Bill of Rights and then thinking about someone who is minimally speaking or non-speaking, how are they going to access the Communication Bill of Rights through augmentative alternative communication? And any individual who's familiar with just communication sciences in general knows, or any human being knows, that we don't just communicate in school. We don't just communicate in therapy. We don't, we communicate everywhere across a variety, across a variety of modalities. You and I are using Zoom right now with these giant microphones. I was emailing you earlier. I've talked, you know, I may talk to you on the phone. There are um, a myriad of modalities through which we communicate with each other, with each other. And the and communication is a spectrum. So when you think about an individual needing to access their communication bill of rights and communicate in multiple environments, nobody owns just one environment. There are communication partners in a variety of environments. There are peers in a classroom. There are classroom teachers. Think about all the environments where your client, student, patient, AAC user might be, um, and how important it is not only to support the AAC user but to support and make environmental modifications to make that communication as successful as as possible in all of those environments. And of course, when you start talking, using the word, so let's break that down into some subcategories for a second. So you have communication partners in the community. The example I always give is the the guy at Dunkin' Donuts. I'm in New England. There's Dunkin' Donuts like on every corner, right? Or maybe it's Starbucks or or your deli counter or wherever you are. They're the, the unfamiliar communication partner. You have close friends and family who are uh, possibly more familiar communication partners. And you have individuals who work as part of a team, maybe a therapeutic team, maybe a medical team, maybe an educational team. I think as a speech pathologist, the um, intervention team, educational team, medical team are the teams that we're most intimately involved with because it tends to be our work setting. And there are barriers across a lot of those different environments. And it's so important to examine each environment uniquely to make sure that it's not just owned by one individual. Barriers as a speech pathologist are often trying to get the training, You know, we're not gonna train the the guy at Dunkin' Donuts, right? So how do we effectively go into that environment and make sure um, that the communication is being supported to the best of our abilities? We have more access to maybe close friends and family members in terms of training. and there's the AAC user themselves. So this is their communication. Think about their communication bill of rights and um, you know what client values and perspectives we need to take into consideration to make it not about us and our choices, but about them and their choices and recentering the client and family perspectives and values. I haven't even talked about the professional team yet and I will in a second. I just want to also take a moment to have the listeners or people who are watching think about, the critical components related to the Communication Bill of Rights, the Client and Family Values, and Evidence-Based Practice. Everybody listening who is a speech and language pathologist, and if you're not, you can Google this, Evidence-Based Practice is a triangle. It's a triad, right? It's external and internal evidence. So research articles you read, data you collect on your client to make sure your treatment is working. It is clinical judgment. It's also equally supported by client and family perspectives and values. So taking the AAC user's perspectives and values Values into consideration is evidence-based practice. It's not fluff. It's part of our ethical requirement and part of our jobs. In terms of the collaboration piece, when we start talking about professional collaboration, and this is our interaction with, this is our interactions as speech pathologists with classroom teachers, with AIDS. Or paraprofessionals, one-to-ones, and other individuals, other members of the team, that's a critically important piece of success in a school environment or in, you know, a habitual environment. Now, if you're working an outpatient, that's a very different I worked and I got trained in outpatient. That's a very different setting. I'm not sure that we have time to talk about, you know, in terms of the barriers to effectively implementing AAC from an outpatient perspective. Mm -hmm. Because your therapy room does not represent where that child goes or patient goes or student goes or adult goes, you know, the rest of their lives that week. It's just that one hour. But when you're talking about a school team, the AAC, you know, at... AAC isn't necessarily just about accessing curriculum in a school. I know that's what the law says, but there are social interactions in a school. There are, you know, basic wants and needs in a school in terms of access to food and water and bathroom. Mm -hmm. There are preferences, there are activities, there are, you know, school is a really dynamic and robust place, rich with communication. And again, Client, you know, communication bill of rights, thinking of it through that lens, what kinds of things do we need to access as speech pathologists to make that communication as successful and empowering and as important as possible? And it's not in our speech rooms. It's in the classroom. It's in the hallway. It's with the gym teacher. It's with the OT. And it's with the BCBA. Mm-hmm. And I know this is where we really start to see some breakdown. And I don't know if you want to get into that. There's a lot of reasons for it. And this is sort of the world that I live in. It is a shared scope, with a variety of different professionals. And unfortunately, when we collaborate with BCBAs around AAC, there tend to be more grumpy feelings for a whole host of reasons, a lot of which are justified. But it is a shared scope of practice. doesn't necessarily mean it's a shared scope of competence. It also doesn't necessarily mean that there is a shared scope when when you when you start talking about AAC implementation versus AAC evaluation and right. recommendations those are also two different things that have very different implications for for shared scope but you can sort of see through looking at all of that through the student uh, through the communication bill of rights how important it is it's critical to share this across Professionals to make to support the AAC user being as empowered and successful, and you know, in their lives, particularly in schools.
0: Yeah, and I th- I think that's what's so interesting about private practice versus public school. I really love that I've always had a toe in both settings because. You know, when I'm in a private practice, like today, I saw a private client and I completely get access to the family and I'm in the home environment and it's a younger student. So I can answer so many questions that the family has and I can see how they're interacting and I love that versus when I'm in a school. It is. It's so language enriched. I, I tend to work with middle school and high school students, so it's like the entire school environment is yeah. my therapy room. I always say that I really don't see anybody in my therapy room unless it's something very, very um, specific, like maybe a student who's stuttering or you know something like that. But I always make, I always say the larger school environment. That's what I put on my IEPs mm-hmm. that the student will communicate in the larger school environment. I love that. Thank you. Because if you're really thinking about it, I am always thinking, well, how is my student... Number one, why is what we're working on functional? And number two, how can they generalize that across the day? Because if we're working on something that and we're not sure why we're working on it. You know, sometimes as a young clinician, I remember when I was working in a non-public program, and I would have these special ed directors come in and drill me on why I was working on something with a student, and I kind of was like, um, "I don't know," because I think That's I what have my to textbook know. told me to do. Okay. That's what's next in the steps. Um, yeah, I'm not <laughs> sure exactly. Um, but as I became more seasoned, you know, I feel more comfortable talking about those different types of things. But um, so with your practice, do you do a lot of? Consult- consulting in the schools when you're where you're a piece of the team because I think as I'm very spoiled in my school district. I actually have an AAC. Her title is specialist. Um, that's and why I put it in
1: quotes. <laughs> it is a real job. It's Okay, just, you
0: know, it totally is. I and I I love her. I'm not sure, you know, I'm not in that world full time. So I'm not sure what I know. It's kind of like saying behavior specialist. There's a lot of mm-hmm. questions about that term. But this person comes in, they help me with assessments and they help in my county. You know, it's through an educational service center. So it's such a great... I think that's what's hard for especially school-based or anybody really to number one, stay up to date. Like you talked about assessment versus intervention. I think for some people, it's just really hard to even know how to get started um, in the assessment portion of it. So it, I know that is, wasn't exactly maybe one of our talking points, but is that something that if you're listening and you're a school-based therapist and you're like, well, how do I even get started? You know, Do you have any kind of basic one, two, three steps for us regarding that type of assessment piece? It's, it's more like one through
1: 50 steps, but yes. So, I mean, it, you know, AAC is a really specific area of competence that requires knowledge across not necessarily just communication development, but equipment and vendors and the law and your workplace setting and funding and Medicaid. I mean, and docu- the documentation is different. So it's a much more it's a much bigger beast to tackle. And funny enough, we just wrote three ep. We just wrote two ep. We have a series of epi- uh, podcast episodes on this um, that we released in the last two months. So AAC of All Basics 1, AAC of All Basics 2, and then I'm not sure when this is coming out, but we have another one that will be up in July, end of July. That's going to be a live one to sort of answer some questions. And we've broken it down into, and anybody who's listening who does want to seek more additional information, you don't have to listen to our podcast. There's lots of other resources out there. But I think it's really important to go through the you know, if you're seeking your own knowledge and sort of choosing your own adventure, breaking it into the sequence. So, step number one what is the Communication Bill of Rights? How is AAC different than a typical three year assessment? What are some of the philosophical cornerstones? You know, you have to have your A, we call it put your AAC evaluator hat on. It's a totally different hat that you may have never worn. Um, Familiarize yourself with some of the assessment frameworks that are out there that are wonderful, like the SET framework, that's S-E-T-T, that was written by Joy Zabala. We have an episode on that as well. We interviewed her. She's amazing. Hi, Joy. You're the best. And then the second one would be the PESICO framework, P-E-S-I-C-O, which is more of a medical model But familiarize yourselves with the different frameworks and how different an AAC assessment is from a three-year. There's no standardized test. It's a lot of clinical judgment and it's a lot of background knowledge. And then the second piece I would start to look into is what does it take to actually sit in the chair? I say sit in the chair, roll on the floor, walk in the hallway. What does it take to physically do the assessment? What are the action steps that you're going to take in preparing to do that assessment? And that requires a lot of knowledge across a variety of different skill sets, including language development, which likely you have if you're an SLP motor and access skills and the knowledge and skills that your PT and OT can bring to the table if you have access to or vision specialists, if you have access to those individuals, as well as the different features that are available across the wide array of products and that are out there to support minimally and non-speaking individuals. And That is a really big knowledge set to acquire in terms of knowing what products are out there and then really becoming comfortable in what we call the feature matching process. So matching the features of a product with the features of an individual. And then Amy, hi, Amy, you're the best. She's always taught me. She's taught me everything I know. You know, the top, you know, there's your must-have features. So I have to have X, Y, and Z in an AAC system because little Johnny or Susan or whoever you are needs these features. And then I like to have, I would like to have features. So really getting familiar with that process. And then the final process, it's not really final, but is understanding the documentation, understanding how to write the report so that understanding what the funding sources are. So when you write the report, it has a chance to get funded if you're going through a funding source. Understanding how to make time for these these assessments are, you know, eight pages long. And as it turns out, we all do it a little differently. So Amy trained me, but we have very different perspectives on things and that's okay. And then I think an overarching piece of all of that is self-awareness and ego. An AAC evaluation is not about you. It is not about what products you like. It is not about what you think is best. You are not the decider. And that's the big... I, you, earlier you said like reflecting on yourself. This is where I like start to do like a little hot flashing and cringing. Thinking about myself as an early evaluator is there was a big piece of that is like, I have these skills. Look at me. I'm going to decide this for you. I'm going to pick the best one. And that's like the opposite of what this is about. And being an AAC evaluator is really about facilitating a decision to support someone else.
0: Oh, I love that facilitating a decision to support someone else. That's my new life motto. Because (laughs) in 20 years that I've been doing this, I've definitely come into a position where every single kid is on this. Every right. single oh, kid is happens. using a static core board. We call every it the app single, du jour. Yeah. Every single kid is doing this. It's mm-hmm. just, it's so hard because it is such a level of expertise that if you don't have access to somebody to help, you know, most places do though. I feel like most educational service centers or there may be people like you that are consultants that can come in because keeping up with that level of expertise. I remember I went to ATIA, I think mm-hmm. it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I had this really cool job down in Austin, Texas. And basically, I was doing what I do now for ABA speech. I was like talking about ABA with speech therapists. And uh, they sent me to ATIA with our AAC specialist. And I would come back and I would disseminate information. It was really the coolest. But this is a conference that's all about... AAC and things like that, in the exhibit hall is just the most amazing thing you've ever seen. With all this technology, that wouldn't just help a student that potentially is autistic and non-speaking or not yet talking, but you know other types of people who need different types of software. It's really the most amazing thing. But what I'm saying is, this is how people keep up to date on these types of things because it yeah. is. I think that's the one barrier for speech therapists is that AAC is constantly advancing, just like the technology. Like When I started in the field, and I had Susan Berkowitz on. I don't know if you know her, but she's been practicing 40 years and she talks about AAC. And we were just laughing about how much it's changed. I used to have Mm -hmm. to send in a student's dedicated device because it fell on the floor, somehow got shattered. And I was very much at one with the people in the city I was working in, like the post office. I learned about shipping. Mm-hmm. I was always on the phone with like pranky romic customer service. I had, you know, and so that's just so different now, especially with the iPad and things like that. So
1: have you seen that shift? Do you think that's a barrier oh, yeah. to
0: speech well, therapist? I mean, it was
1: definitely a shift. So what was that? 2011, 2010, the iPad came out. And so for the first time, different software was all available on the same marketplace. So you had different software companies all available on the same hardware. It didn't happen overnight. It took, you know, two and a half, three years. But it was a total game changer in the field. And I honestly think, so this is another really regional problem. Mm -hmm. So for example, Amy and I are both on the AAC advisory group. For Massachusetts advocates for children, trying to address this in our home state through legislation, because, or legislature, whatever one is the right word. And, you know, there isn't a lot of access to. It's not necessarily the access to the constantly changing technology so much as it is access to the training and resources because I think one of the biggest barriers that I've come across in my career in training people is that there's this thing right there's this like box, there's this iPad or this core board or this book or there's this thing around, and s l p s that I train over and over again, okay so. How should I do therapy? Like there be just because there's this thing there, there is this hurdle like like it's something special or something different. And the answer is you are you do therapy the way you would do with any child. Right. You might model a little bit more. There are some small changes, but it, you know, there is this I don't know, I want to say like je ne sais quoi. Like there's this quality to intervention with AAC that makes people feel like they don't have the skills. And therefore, there's this over-reliance on these quote specialists. Now, I keep quitting it in air quotes. And just to be clear, I am employed as an AAC specialist. So is my counterpart. So are lots of people. It's not like it's a real job. But when you say specialist, it it implies that other people don't have that skill set. And that's a problem. Because what we want is every person who's working with a minimally speaking or non-speaking or AAC user of any kind To feel empowered to embrace the technology. And when I say technology, I don't necessarily mean batteries, the communication book, the core board, or whatever. So I think there's just something about AAC that sets it a little bit apart and makes it more intimidating. And I see that as the biggest barrier because, you know, if you don't get the app update or if you don't know like the biggest and best thing, you might not have the most up-to-date information in your like little toolbox when you go through the feature matching process and in terms of deciding on a tool. But AAC implementation and having an implementation plan is a bajillion times more important than the device itself. I have a great colleague up here who has also taught me a lot and she always says, Sometimes you're gonna dance with the person you brought to the dance. I always say it wrong. She says a lot better than me. Sorry, Mary, I'm really butchering this. But you know, you can you can do great language intervention and you can do great AAC implementation with a device that isn't perfect or with a communication system that isn't perfect. Because and the reverse is true. You can have the most perfectly matched device in the world. And if it's not implemented, implemented properly, it's a paperweight. It doesn't get used. Yes. What good is that? It's useless, right? Yeah. It's hard to get it all
0: going at the same time because mm -hmm. I know that I worked with one student. I have in some of my... Help Me Find My Voice, our five-hour ASHA-approved course. uh, I have a video of this student who's an early learner and came to us with very unsafe aggressive behavior that was a barrier to him being in school the community you name it and he came to us with a beautiful device a beautifully set up device with real life pictures and really a nice motor plan it all made sense but the intervention piece and i'm sure his behavior was a barrier you know it's like the chicken and the egg what came first but you know he wasn't using it functionally so we had to really just you know pair the environment and ourselves with with good things and and he was able to to start using it and communicate on his own which was absolutely Amazing. But that's so true. I think sometimes people are waiting for that very perfect thing to come along. And that's what I've always, you know, just make sure we're taking data making sure we have a plan. And you know, this may seem so elementary to you because in your practice, but one of the things that I have really tried to do in my practice in a school, I've been lucky enough that the school that I work in, we have the iPads with the students' exact vocabulary that's on there so that staff can go through and see what is in the device. Where the different buttons are, how to use, you know, word finder, Mm -hmm. how to find the different things. Because if you don't know, I think people are just afraid. They're afraid of it. Like you said, this is like going to totally change the way that I do therapy. Like the student is non speaking and they have a device. And now I'm not sure where to go. And I think that just goes back to your comfort level, your familiarity kind of hunkering down and getting in there. But I have found that something as easy as making sure that staff has access to being able to go in to the student's AAC device um, and now with technology being so advanced, they don't even have to touch the student's actual device. There are ways to have that on another iPad. And I do have a nice tech uh, team where I work. So that is a kind of a luxury I have. But that way, people feel comfortable. And even to train staff and teachers, like, hey, mm-hmm. this is WordFinder. If you're working on something you want the student to participate in... Um, But then I always scaffold it too. Like if I have students and they're working on news to you, and the student is at a level where they're able to participate, and we... Kind of supplement that—that may may not even be a goal for their speech therapy, but I may see what they're going to be going over in the larger group lesson, and then I scaffold that in my session and make sure I orient them to those types of things on their device so they feel comfortable then participating Mm -hmm. um, in the classroom. So those types of easy—I guess maybe it's not easy, but (laughs)
1: those little suggestions—it speaks to your comfort level, right? And and I think you know there are a lot of classroom staff speech pathologists who mm-hmm. are you know so they told me to model on the device but w- what does that mean or right. how often do i do it do i do i do it constantly if i if i only did it twice and i did i not do it right there are a lot of implementation strategies in the AC that are very gray and they're very individualized. And, you know, you and I could get trained in the same thing and we do it differently and it looks totally different. Is that bad? No, not necessarily at all. So, I mean, I think that there, this is one of those areas where I had a professor say this to me in graduate school, it's the science and the art sort of blended together. And I think it's, it's not, as intuitive as other things are in our field like working on a an S sound or you know some of some of these other very black you know you can give some black and white instruction there's a lot more nuance to it and i think it it makes it difficult absolutely
0: So if you have a parent or if you have a SLP who wants to dip a toe into AAC and kind of get started, I mean, I love this idea of the Communication Bill of Rights because I've heard of that, but I feel like after this, I want to go back and look at it again on ASHA. Um, What are some other things that they could do to kind of orient themselves to, you know, what is AAC, kind of some basic preliminary you know Kate has a podcast which i know you're going to tell us a little bit about that towards the end to find out more about you but anything else that you would kind of recommend if you have a speech therapist and maybe they got a new position and they're going to be working with some AAC users what might be like a good starting point for resources sure
1: um so it's funny i it's really weird to talk about your own work but we did we did we had this exact question come to us and so we did publish two episodes AAC basics one and two just to get some like fundamental understanding um if you want to read some articles the blog Practical AAC is amazing Carol Zangari runs that blog and she's brilliant there are a lot of websites out there and I don't know if they're nonprofits but other other companies and other re, you know resource hotspots describing these things terribly. But the Institute for AAC and Autism is another great one. Another great thing to do, this sounds a little strange, but is to go to the vendor websites Mm -hmm. and troll the website. So what does PRC sell and offer versus what does TouchChat sell and offer? Sometimes your comfort level with AAC comes around just that, just being comfortable. Mm -hmm. And if you're able to sit at a desk with a new student and look at their device and go, oh, I know what that is. That's an iPad." Loaded with Touch Chat, or that's Proloquo, or that's Speak for Yourself, or that's Toast Snap Plus Core. If you can, if you can identify what it is, some of that anxiety is just going to reduce a little bit, and then you'll have anxiety about something else, probably. If you're anything like me, but <laughs> you know, you, you can work through it. So just going to the vendor websites, high tech and light tech, just go uh, check out Ogcom Resources or Attainment Company or AbleNet. Those are all great. Uh, vendors that sell equipment related to complex mobility, complex bodies, Just, you know, getting yourself familiar with the stuff because the stuff is sometimes what makes you freeze and go, uh, especially in AAC. So, we've all had this experience of sitting down with a student or a client and like what you planned, you like spent, you know, half an hour cutting these things out and the kid looks at them and like tosses them on the floor and you're like, oh my God, what do I do? And you have to like fly by the seat of your pants and like come up with something. The same thing happens in AAC, except you're like, oh my God, I got to program like five buttons. If you don't know how to fluently program those buttons, you're going to spend a lot more time back backtracking. So sometimes just becoming more fluent in the equipment itself can be a huge step in the right direction because then you, you you know, alleviate some of your brain space to think about the language piece, the intervention piece, the behavior management. Right. So in terms of like, best places to start, I would go there. I would also go to those resources and, and maybe your grad school texts. A lot of the definitions we use in the AAC world were all available to you in, in your grad school text. Unaided versus aided, you know, symbolic continuum, transparent symbols, opacity, you know, opaque symbols, all that kind of stuff. Good information. Love that. And you know, the other thing too, like I have always reached out to how Kate mentioned some
0: of those vendors. A lot of the times those vendors have salespeople or a representative for your state. And they're actually very helpful. I just will reach out to them via email. I've had them come out and let us have trial devices. And those are things that I just did. I just contacted those people. I was on the website, just like you said, trolling the website, yeah. contacting them because they're there. Usually those people, some of the times they are speech therapists and sometimes. they just cover... Sometimes. And they cover sometimes. so many different states. So every state is different. I think that's why it's a little harder. But those are those are really great resources. Such great information. Kate, love that so much.
1: You're uh, welcome. I will uh, say one thing about working hi. with the vendors is just... Yeah. there. It is... It, we talk about this in our AAC courses coming up in the end of July, but we are ethically obligated to make sure that we do not have financial relationships with the products that we recommend because that right. has bias. And again, it's not about us. It's about the user. So I have had instances or experiences where the vendor has offered me free product for using their product in an assessment mm. or offered to come to my assessment and made recommendations about the product in mm. front of the family. So if you are going to work, and it's totally different by region. I mean, the vendors in my area, they're like friends. I adore them. But I, I think a word of caution, if you are new to the field and really interested in maximizing your time with the vendors, just do be aware that you have an ethical obligation to not establish a financial relationship with that vendor and to make sure that they are you know, playing the role of a vendor and not the role of a salesperson in your assessment. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Good point. Yeah. And not something I have come across, but good, good to, to discuss that. Very cool. Um, okay. So such great information today. Um, I always end the podcast with one kind of two final questions here. What is the most important piece of advice that you would want to pass along to parents or professionals about autism in communication?
1: Oh, God. That was a big question. No, what is my me. biggest piece of advice yeah. to parents and professionals? Now, I'm just repeating the question back to you because I don't have an answer prepared. <laughs> um I would say my biggest piece of advice is have compassion and empathy because every individual who is living with autism either themselves or a family member is experiencing something different and communication is about a lot more than just learning to ask for things oh, that I would love be that, that. Piece of advice. Yes. I'm going to think about this later and have anxiety. No. That's
0: gonna, oh my gosh, you were funny. Okay, <laughs> amazing, amazing info. I love that. Be compassionate. I think everybody needs that.
1: Where can people find out more about you and your work? Oh, okay. That that answer I can tell you without without flinching too much. So, we have a podcast called SLP Nerdcast, www.slpnerdcast.com that has I'd say the majority of 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 my work and my colleagues' work. And we have... All of our podcast episodes can be listened to for ASHA CEUs. Um, They're free to listen to. And then the ASHA CEU processing fee is like super cheap. And there's a lot of information on there about AAC. So both myself and Amy are employed as quote AAC specialists. And so we have episodes on AAC implementation, partner training, AAC basics, AAC eval basics, AAC and um, functional communication training. So implementing AAC in ABA, and we have a lot more of those coming up. We're also hopefully going to have an AAC introduction to AAC material through an, a masterclass that we're going to be publishing for graduate level credit sometime this fall. So late 2021, early 2022. If someone's listening and wants to learn more about AAC, get that lane change, the school lane change for grad level credit. Um, and I think I think that's I think that's pretty much it. Okay, and you're on Instagram. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You can. I'm on Instagram. You can also email me. I'm a a human. Multiple modalities of communication. Okay. (laughs) And she'll get back to you. No,
0: she's good about that. Um, Well, it was great to have you on. Uh, Make sure to check the show notes for the resources we discussed. And if you're listening, make sure that you check out our new free on-demand webinar, Five Strategies to Help Your Students with Autism Engage and Communicate. And you can find that right at abaspeech.org. I hope that you enjoyed the show. And if you haven't done so already, make sure to hit subscribe and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.